0: Welcome to one of the highlights of this year in Gospel Conversations, and that's my interview with Edwin Judge. Now, most of you by now who follow Gospel Conversations would know who Edwin is, but it's just worthwhile a reminder that we have the great privilege here of listening to one of the the eminent historians of the ancient world. And he's he's eminent in that his whole life and career is extremely detailed and extensive textual analysis of all kinds of fragments from the ancient world. Um, For over 20 years, Edwin has been leading a major research project for Cambridge um, into uh, the diagnosis and analysis of... um, Documentary fra- fragments from Egypt in the first and second centuries that have been recovered and increasingly translated, and from those fragments, building up a picture of the social fabric of Christianity in Egypt. And that's, as it were, Edwin's, Edwin's, uh, Edwin's day job. Edwin's passion and interest, however, is far, far broader than that, because Edwin is actually more a historian, a historian of ideas, and a philosopher than he is just a um, specialist ancient historian. And his mind has been intrigued all of his life to get inside the the soul of the Roman, the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world, and its life and death clash with Christianity. That life and death clash, Edwin calls the conflict between Athens and Jerusalem, or Rome and Jerusalem. And that conflict of uh, of huge ideas was um, really the fulcrum of the modern world. That's Edwin's thesis. Now, that conflict was was, uh, a unique conflict for the Romans, hence the title of this talk, which is, Why Did the Romans Dislike the Christians So Much? Now, this dislike was a strange dislike because it was, ting- it was tinged with admiration. So it was, it was not an easy dislike. And it was not, you know, a tip, I, guess, I suppose I used to think that perhaps the Romans disliked lots of people and the Christians were just another sort of troublesome group in their vast empire. Not at all, not at all. The Romans were very accommodating. They, they knew how to manage that diversity. But in the Christians in particular... They found a total puzzle, a puzzle that they, they couldn't name, they couldn't categorise, and yet, and, and was not taking arms against them, was not a political force, and yet they, they suspected, they perceived that this uh, movement was actually going to undermine their very culture and the fabric of their culture. Uh, they had similar problems with the Jews, but, but far less so, and it was, it was the Christians in particular. Uh, that were so very, very different. Now, this hour or more you're going to hear, will delve into some uh, really deep matters that are are very ironically, very ironically, they are incredibly modern. As we are finding ourselves in a postmodern world that calls itself secular, um, has, you know, uh, that secular that secularity has really been founded upon a distaste for the religious empiricism, uh, uh, not empiricism, what's the word? Religious monopoly, I suppose, that Christianity has enjoyed over the mind of uh, so many countries in the world, and it's getting pushed right back to the edges. So it's a very unsettling time. And in an unsettling time, I suppose, at face value, you would think that the last thing to do is go back 2000 years i mean that's archival that's ancient ancient history what what use is that to us and the answer is ironically it's fen- phenomenally useful because when we go back to the origins the crucible of christianity we find that in fact a lot of the conflicts the deep conflicts of ideas that we're now facing in they 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 faced actually far more than we ever faced and uh, to explore the depth of that con- uh, conflict, I, I ask Edwin some critical questions. And the opening question is the one that really frames the whole talk, which is, um, well, was Christianity a religion? Was it, today it's seen as a religion, but was it a religion as seen through the eyes of the Roman World? Did they even categorize it as a religion? And from that opening, we his answer is no, not at all. It was not a religion. Of course, that tells us straight away that this the way Christianity was positioned, the way Christianity presented itself, was very, very different um, than the position it's worked itself into today as a quote-unquote religious system. In fact, he calls it a conceptual system, a movement. You'll enjoy this talk immensely. It definitely is a, is an, it's not a talk. It's, a, it's an interview, but you you will you'll probably need to listen to it a couple of times because there's, there's so much depth in this. I know since I have got to know Edwin very well and read quite a lot of what he's saying, that I believe what Edwin has to say is very, very pertinent and important uh, for the modern world, the whole modern world, people of faith. People who are just inquiring, people with open minds. So um, enjoy this, and, and may God illuminate you and bless you uh, in in, um, in listening. Okay. Well, welcome to uh, Edwin and um, the uh, the title tonight. Uh, which Edwin suggested, was w- why the Romans disliked the Christians so much um, and why they were so puzzled by them. We're, not going, to, we're going to attack that topic obliquely. Um, more broadly, uh, there's a really relevant substrate to this whole discussion tonight, which is the rise of the modern so-called secular society and the movement of Christianity to the edges of society Um, and we're going to go right back to the Roman era to actually find out I think that it actually began at the edges of society and I wouldn't be at all surprised if Edwin wouldn't say it's a jolly good thing for Christianity to go back to the edges of society. Um, But I wanted to open up by reading um, an extract which... uh, from an author that I think you admire, Edwin, uh, Leslie Newbigin. No. Um, I recommend it. Recommended, yes. So this one is a book he... Uh, who's heard of Leslie Newbigin? About half of us. Um, yeah, he was the Bishop of Madras. So he, he wrote a while ago. Um, like, looks like to me that 1960s and 70s. I'm not sure if that's correct. This no, one was... was like yeah, 68, yeah. So what was interesting, a very, very intelligent man, uh, but of course having worked for so long in in India was confronted by comparative religions and in a way we're not. But when he came back to London and the West, he confronted this secular society and he had the agility of mind to think about it more deeply and flexibly and less defensively perhaps than others did. So I want to read this out because um, after we'd... Uh, invited uh, you to speak, Edwin. when I, I came across this um, chapter, and I thought it gives a really magnificent setting for what we're talking about. Uh, chapter one in his book was actually on comparative religion. It was essentially the debate um, amongst the world missionary movement, where does Christianity fit in with other religions? Are other religions like early steps and preparing people to faith, or... You know, what should our attitude to other religions be? And he gives uh, quite a powerful summary of the missionary movement, which by and large seemed to me in the early 20th century pretty wise. Everyone's saying we should seek for commonality before we have differences. But then he starts chapter two and says, well, all I've done so far is kind of compare Christianity amongst the religions. And that comparison itself is a problem because it's actually not a religion. So I just want to read out this opening It is obvious that Christianity shares many of the characteristics uh, of other great world religions. If the word religion covers such things as the practice of individual and corporate worship, prayer, the reading and treasuring of sacred scriptures, then it requires no argument to prove that Christianity is a religion. But it is also clear that Christianity has much in common with movements which are not normally included under the word religion. It could be convincingly argued, for example, this is really interesting, that Christianity has much more in common with Marxism than with Buddhism. There is much evidence to show that modern secularism has its roots in the Bible. Moreover, as a matter of missionary experience, it may be questioned whether the point of contact between the gospel and the non-Christian person's experience is normally found in the field of their religious experience. The point at which the Gospel comes home to an ordinary person is very often in relation to some experience of their secular life, which has no obvious reference to religious beliefs and practices. I am thinking of things that are learned in the home, the human experience of love and estrangement of obedience and disobedience, of loyalty and disloyalty, experiences of calamity and deliverance, of bereavement and comfort of guilt and forgiveness. It is normally in relation to such experiences that the gospel becomes meaningful to men and women, rather than in relation to some element of their specifically religious belief. Um, The new thing which Jesus announced, the kingdom of God as present reality, was to be grasped through a deeper understanding of ordinary human experience. Uh, We conclude that while Christianity is certainly one of the religions, it cannot be fully understood merely as one of the religions, even if it is the supreme and culminating one. And then he concludes, the gospel in its original form is the announcement of an event which is decisive for all people and for the whole of their life. It is an event which is described in universal and cosmic terms. The announcement implies that in this event all God's purpose for the world is being brought to its fulfilment. We are not dealing here with a religious message which brings to completion and perfection the religious teaching of all the ages. We are in fact dealing with the announcement which concerns the end of the world. So I thought that was a good opening, um, Edwin, to our discussion. And uh, to the the first question that I wanted to raise with you is this problematic word, religion. And I wanted to ask you if you could explain for us what this word meant in the first, se- second century.
1: Well, it didn't exist then. The Latin word Religio, from which we take religion, uh, is a very difficult word to define. If you look at the Oxford Latin Dictionary, you'll see nine different senses. And they start with, perhaps, taboo, uh, scruple, and so on, and rolls down through a long list of things, none of which we would normally think of under the heading religion. Only perhaps at the tail end do they say something about, say, cult. But if you look at these various shades of meaning that religio has in Latin, uh, you can see that it's very difficult for us to grasp what it is they're talking about. Uh, What is common to the nine different senses in the dictionary, in my opinion, is our word constrained? when a person feels constrained for reasons he can't even explain or identify and doesn't want to but he just feels constrained to do something and not something else that's what the Romans meant by religio uh, no one actually knows the etymology of the word but some say it comes from the latin word for binding that doesn't particularly matter and may not be correct the main thing is it, it, it is the un clarified sense of caution or scruple about things. Now, notice a curious thing. Um, That's actually what we call superstition, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, Particularly the not being able to explain it. It's inherited. You, You can't walk under a ladder you can't do this, you can't do that. All these things are passed down to us by our language, uh, and we sort of laugh at them, but do them anyway, even if only for fun. Uh, And people who act like that, for some people of course, indeed many people in our community, uh, are, are deeply attached, whatever their beliefs are, deeply attached to scrupulosity about the little things of life. And, that, and that's what we call superstition, I think. The fascinating thing is that the Christians, when they appeared on the scene at Rome, had nothing to do with religio. They, they could not be related to that precautionary attitude of mind. Um, and the Romans in the handout you've got, you can look it up later, the three Roman writers, all highly intelligent, historically broadly informed writers, just on a century after Pentecost, or a bit less, are our first explicit self-conscious comments on what the Christians were. The writers are Tacitus, Suetonius, and Pliny and the texts and translation are all in what you've been given. And they all express deep uncertainty about what it is that these people are really doing and what they are to be called. And in each case, they settle for the word superstitio. And yet, in the long history of the word religio, by the fourth century when the Roman world had been comprehensively or was being very rapidly comprehensively converted to Christian belief, and the government was backing it from the year 312 onwards under Constantine, um, sometime in the fourth century, the churches, now Latinizing, of course, in the West, uh, took the Roman word religio, meaning in modern terms, in dictionary terms, scrupulosity or something and used it for themselves. Our modern sense of religion um, begins with the Christians having taken the Roman Empire, taking on the the admired word, irrespective of what its normal usage was, Um, and at the same time The people in power at Rome now, and the bishops and all this kind of thing, I'm speaking of the fourth century, would of course denounce the innumerable old cults of Greece and Rome, the inherited religion, as we choose to call it, all the scrupulous things that people are They were denounced now as superstition. So a complete switchover in terminology in the Latin language took place, between the second century when, we, when the Christians are pigeonholed as superstitious, uh, and the fourth century when they capture the word religio for themselves and call the others superstitious, as we would today.
0: So, so this is really intriguing. Um, if I can just summarise what you've said. I mean, one thing that really strikes me is that it was actually the Christians to blame uh, for grabbing the word religion and oh
1: yes they should have left it alone
0: they should have left it alone and um, exactly. so 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 now we're stuck with a bad branding um, of Christianity as a religion but we caused the problem <coughs> and that this word in its initial form was a, a, I love your idea of restraint but I guess ga- constraint it's a, it's a constraining thing I gather it was a kind of a also a, a social practice, a ritual, something that was
1: somehow or other at the centre of the culture, of, can you... Yes, well, you're right to be hesitant about it, because the Romans themselves did not know. One of the fascinating things is, it, the Romans were a very systematic and orderly and intellectual people, and in Augustus's time, the time of Caesar and Cicero and Augustus, Varro wrote a massive lifelong work in multiple volumes on things human and divine attempting to explain what the gods of Rome really were and 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 it failed he recognized it as a failure he he, he could not explain the the divinities he could explain the anthropology of them what the ceremonies were and what the alleged history of them was, and all that kind of thing, but, but he could not interpretatively give meaning to, if you like, religio. He called it divine matters. And that is of profound importance because it, it shows clearly that a highly intellectual, analytical, very educated Roman figure like Varro, with the whole half millennium of Greek philosophy behind him, could not say what it was that the Romans were doing on this front, and he, um, by contrast, in the, a century later, in the time of Paul, Seneca, the Stoic philosopher at Rome, coeval with Paul, said of the Jews, "They know what they do and why." Now, that was also a very perceptive comment, and I don't know whether you're going to let me talk about the topic tonight, but um, <laughs> uh, what I would like to say about it, well, incidentally, before I say anything, it was my topic, and because I thought the one that Tony wanted was too boring, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> because he said that, why don't you speak about salt and life? And I, my heart sank, and I thought, well, the trouble is, we all know what salt and light means. It's there in the Gospel, and, and the meaning of it is and it's brilliant and wonderful. I'm not against salt and light. But, um, and let me say at once. I won't come back to salt and light. In the long run, this is the explanation of the conversion of, of, of the Roman world. Whatever at the grassroots level salt and light, we think, means um, was taken on by the Roman public, the Roman public itself, not Constantine. He was struck down by a vision in his in the sky, all right. But by, the, by that stage, huge swathes of people were adhering to the Gospel and its world view. And in other words, at the salt and light level, that was how the thing was converted. But I, I said it to be much better if it's called the topic um, Um, the Christians were not salt and light, but that wouldn't have been true. But always ask a question in the negative form. That's why I wanted it in the form of what was wrong with the Christians. I'd never thought of that before. I only thought of it when he said, why don't we have salt and light? And I thought that wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. But it's a good principle, actually, always to try the negative. I know it's irritating for other people who don't like negativism, but intellectually, it, it is a better road in to any... Yes, and so so what, let's go to that
0: now, and which is what was so puzzling? I okay. mean, as, as I understand it from our conversations and reading, that they couldn't categorise what That's was happening. Right. They...
1: That is crucial. Why couldn't they, why did they have to call them a superstitio? They meant, of course, by superstitio, just what we mean by superstition, namely an incomprehensible, uh, alarming mental chaos of some kind. Um... And, But the, the remark by Seneca is very instructive. The Jews know why they do things.
0: Yeah, that's a lovely phrase.
1: And we know, we know exactly why Seneca... I don't think Seneca knew why, but we know why he knew why. It's because of the exodus and the, the promise that every son of Israel had to make to instruct his son on what happened on that day etc 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 and this didactic history clarifying structure of thought permeates everything in Judaism down to this day and the remarkable thing about Judaism as a, a phenomenon in history and now is its extraordinary coherence and tenacity and continuity nothing like it ever in world history anywhere in my view and it, it's also the quality of it. But notice also what happens always, or most, mostly with Judaism, people both hate it and admire it. They can see the merits, they can see the ethical qualities, they can see the brilliance, the intellectual contributions that Jews make always in culture, ultra-culture, um, down the ages. Um, and yet they don't like it. And the Romans were exactly like that. Um, the Romans, even ordinary Roman people, envied the Jews because they knew why they were doing. The Jews did things on the eve of Sabbath, for example. They, they put little um, sardines on their window sills and let a candle. And, and the ordinary Roman people thought this was lovely, you see, and, and admired it and wished they were Jews and they could do that too, you see. So these little things about Judaism could be very attractive. And, but also, as we know from the New Testament phenomenon, very large numbers of people, uh, sort of fellowship, which is a word used in this city I know, uh, with Jews, that is, they went to the synagogues. And it was these people who went to the synagogues because of the attraction of, of the Jewish view of the world and in its ethical strength. Um, But they were not born to it, they were not entitled to be there, they were not in the succession. And it was in these circles, I think, and I generally thought those contested, that the Gospel was taken up. Now, the remarkable, amazing thing, however, and there's a contrary to everything that goes on in the learned world on this subject. The discrepancy between Christians, in spite of what I've just said, the discrepancy between Christians and Jews was crystal clear to the Romans from the beginning of our documentation. When you get a chance to read these things I've given you here, look up the translations of the bits by Tacitus, Suetonius, and Pliny. All three of them call the Christians a superstitio, as I've mentioned. All three of them are completely baffled by what it really is that they're talking about. They're anxious, alarmed, troubled. It's in in each case a kind of national or civic problem what to do about it. But, and this is the crucial point that people don't recognise, not one of these three writers, highly informed, learned people, has the slightest awareness that these people had any connection with Judaism whatsoever. They know that Jesus was done to death in Palestine. That doesn't have anything to do with Judaism, but in New Testament studies, the whole professional world is wrapped in this generation and the past generation over regret about the division between Judaism and Christianity. It post-Second World War, emotional crisis grips the New Testament discipline. And so we been book after book after book, A regretting the parting of the ways, as it's called, B saying, well it didn't really happen anyway, did it? It was just there were troublemakers from time to time, and so on. And again and again and again the scenario is projected that that it wasn't just Judaism and Christianity, but there were many Christianities and there were many Judaisms, and so things were different and so on and so on, and, and, and there isn't a sharp dividing line or anything like that. All of this, from a historical point of view, is nonsense. There is no evidence for that. And the evidence of the only three Roman writers that I've mentioned, the earliest three, and it's quite a long gap, remember, but they're, they're looking back across that gap, they know it starts with Jesus, they know his date, But it never occurs to any of them that it's anything to do with Judaism. That's why it's a puzzle. Judaism was not a puzzle to the Romans. They knew what it was. The Jews knew, and the Romans knew they knew. And uh, see, after a century before Pentecost, in the 60s BC, Jerusalem was taken by storm by Pompey the Great. And I forget the figure, but scores of thousands of Jewish prisoners of war were transported to Rome and sold on the slave market in Rome, I think. And so by the time Paul and Peter got to Rome, there were many synagogues in Rome with the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the ones who'd come as prisoners of war. Now Roman citizens, of course, because you can start as a prisoner of war and be sold into slavery, (coughs) end up a Roman citizen, as very large numbers of people did, or having Latin status. So the city of Rome, the city of a million people in Paul's day, had very large numbers of synagogue communities, uh, Greek-speaking communities, of course. um, And the Roman public was very aware of, of what the synagogue circles did. And they were, again, contrary to the reigning view, even in Jewish circles, the, the Judaism in Rome was, um, what's the word when you try and convert everybody? I've suddenly thought it was Prosely. a slightly negative word. Was right. proselytizing. proselytizing. Now, the classic scenario is Jews didn't proselytize. That came with the gospel. But it's not the case. The, We know from the Roman writers that they were uncomfortable because the Jews were proselytising. And there's a famous case recorded, I forget where, um, where a Roman woman of eminence was captivated by Jewish teachers and uh, sold up all her goods and gave the money to them to send back to Jerusalem. Does this remind you of anybody? Paul? it's not Paul by the way, It's the chronology doesn't work, it's not a description of Paul, but the same phenomenon, conversion to the message of Jerusalem and give us your money and they need the money and she willingly gave her stuff and then these guys went off and had a good time with it. They didn't send it back to Jerusalem, they were bogus Jewish missionaries or maybe there were Jewish missionaries who didn't hurry to get the money back.
0: Um,
1: And it caused a massive scandal, and the Jewish community was expelled from Rome temporarily because of this crisis. But what it shows is Judaism was very attractive to many Romans. At the same time, it unnerved them. Uh, the, The Roman poet Horace, in the time of Augustus, has a kind of weak joke in one of his poems in which he says, we poets will compel you to join our crowd, turbar, our crowd, just like the Jews do, he says. So the Romans who were very well aware of, of Judaism and didn't like it, were also unnerved by the fact that it was gaining ground. And, and, and it was influencing people. Yet above all, yet, yet this is getting to our real point now, nobody had the slightest trouble at all in knowing who Jews were. A, you could pick them by their customs in the street, by the things they did. Their history was obvious. They'd had wars with Rome. The Romans knew all about they'd conquered Judea. They also protected the Jews. And then there were subsequent wars, So there was a long history of Roman patronage of Jewish affairs, as well as conflict with it. And in all of this, there was no doubt what, A, what Judaism was and who the Jews were. There was no problem any more than there is today. Everyone knows who the Jews are and so on, so on, so on. Now exact opposite happens with the Christians not having notice. What the modern scholarship insists upon—that this is really just a phenomenon within broad Judaism. Not noticing that, they cannot explain who these people are uh, called Christians. So, so
0: if I can just summarise, and then th- and then move on to the Christians, um, the Jews—sorry, the Romans—did not classify the early Christians as a religion. Uh, they Certainly not,
1: no. It was the opposite of a religion.
0: The opposite of a religion.
1: A religion, you see, was a scrupulous constraint and doing all the right things at the right times and the Christians aren't doing
0: them. Aren't doing them. So, now, they could understand the Jews and they, as you've explained, the Jews were very influential. They also were resented and admired by the Romans. Yes,
1: but incidentally, they didn't require the Jews to do the Roman things. Why? Because the Jews were a different country.
0: Yes, You so, don't
1: have to do Roman things if you're yes. a Jew.
0: So this now comes to the exceeding strangeness, um, and I'd like you to explain it. Uh, uh, I'm gonna, what I'm about to say. I want to read a, a, a section from um, your chapter, Christian Innovation and its Contemporary Observers, mm-hmm. where you say that what was happening amongst the Christians was... Even stranger, and perhaps the only word I can think of, it was more like an organic movement. Um, You said, what you said is, um, the almost total success of this effort points to a development probably without parallel till then in human affairs. And this is how you describe it. A conceptual system which claimed to explain and predict everything about human life was actually being... Put into some kind of general effect contrary to the prevailing outlook. So this was a movement which couldn't be pinned down to ethnicity, tribe, or nation, and the Romans had never had to confront that. Could you expand that a yes, on that? Yes, it's very interesting
1: that point. I'm interested. Fancy me saying that, but uh, the, uh, you're got to disagree with yourself no, now, no, are you? No, I'm, not, I'm agreeing with that. Okay. You're but, admiring that okay. uh, um, the. Uh, This business of disliking, you you have to distinguish who's doing the disliking. Philosophically conscious critics, and we have those later than the political critics that I've mentioned writing in Latin, but later in the second century, you begin getting very fine Greek sources from the intellectual world saying what's intellectually wrong with the Christians. And amazingly, they are too human. That's what they say, but the Christians are too human. The Christians are too human. That In the, in the intellectual sense, they exaggerate the importance of man. They think that these serious gods actually pay attention to our problems. No, so this so. is a phrase that I read. Uh, you called it an anthropocentric yes. conceptual system. The, the intellectual world found the Christians insufferably anthropocentric. They are humans, so that's the trouble. They make humanity too important in a rational universe where everything has its predetermined natural order to start worrying about the sick, the maimed, and the blind, and so on, is grotesque. And 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 and, in a famous remark, Kelsus, the great critic of the second century, he, he, he buckets the Jews as well. He knows the connection between them. He says, the Jews are like frogs croaking in a swamp. And the Christians are like worms in a dunghill arguing about which is the worse sinner. Yes. Now that's the key to it, you see, the worse sinner. Yeah. That's true. That's what the Christians were going on about. So so were the Jews for that matter. But the Christians they were Jews were only frogs. The Christians were worms because they slimily went on and on and on and on about the bad things in life instead of talking about the good things. Uh, if you were a good moral intellectual program, you would favor the good, said Kelser. Self-evidently, the good should have the advantage over the miserable and, and the bad and the poor and so on. It was just inhuman uh, to think that the poor... And in fact, there's a lot of rational common sense. I mean, in evolutionary terms, the disciple survival of the fittest, and what are we doing? Propping up all the relics of society all the time. That's not helping the development of things, is it? And this is more or less the the classical thing. It it was a kind of vulgarisation of reality. Christianity
0: was a vulgarisation of reality. But by
1: contrast, Mm. Mm. um, the Latin critics and those who saw it as a superstition, this is low level, not a, these, these Roman critics, of course, were highly educated, but I think the ordinary people got the creeps when they met Christians because they seemed inhuman. That is, they were inhuman and they didn't do the same things that we do. And in any culture, it only hangs together. Every culture is like this. It won't hang together unless everybody does the same things without having to justify it all the time. And all sorts of conventions. Uh, behind law, Law is only the superstructure. And below that are ethical systems. And below that is just the untouchable, uncontrollable sea of custom. Because we've always done it, and you feel comfortable. You don't have to explain. You just do it. And it didn't matter. You couldn't say whether the gods existed even. That didn't matter. But there, Even, even the systematic atheists in the Greek philosophy schools still wanted to maintain the daily life rituals because the society hung on them, and that's true of any society. You can't have people who are living in an opposite way, and that seemed, therefore, at the local level, inhuman until the salt and light part did Tuck, its work. Took
0: over and did its work. Yeah. But the
1: so the picture we've, that
0: I'm getting, if I, if I can just clarify, was that this revolution um, of the faith had so I just you. you such a radically different use use the phrase conceptual system view of reality that put humans at the center of creation because the gods cared for them so much and were so involved with them and that this was for the the the, the picture i got from reading from talk when we talked together and from the reading is that this was the first time in in history that that there had been such a powerful Movement not organised around tribe, nation, but actually around a big idea, and it, it's almost something I got the picture of that the Romans couldn't pin down and locate because they couldn't understand it. It was too basic. Yes, that,
1: that is true. People just never seem to grasp this: that um, the the biblical tradition, the gospel tradition, is an extraordinarily uh, word-based. It's a word-generated. Uh, phenomenon, and um, but above all, it involves uh, rapidly advancing literacy, uh, constant argumentation, definition, clarification, explanation, and so on. It is a massive educational program, a- an adult educational program entirely outside the educational framework of the time.
0: So, so, the continuation of the gospel via debate, argument, discussion—this, yes. this, this—which this, is what hung the movement together. This That's was right. unique. The, wor- the
1: worms arguing in the dunhill was horrific, but it was effective. Yes, I mean,
0: because at least the worms were arguing. The, the, the other
1: worms probably got some benefit out of it. You see? Yes. and um, the, the. But to see life, what life, We still haven't got to the heart of this question. The Jews were no problem. Everything was explicable. The, the Christians are an utter insoluble problem because nothing is explicable. Who are they? Who are, who are they? And why are they entitled to do this? And in the year 311, one of the great turning points of history occurred, never noticed before by anybody except me, of course. Um, uh, sorry to say that terrible thing. Uh, but it's true. It's true, yes. It? Um, the... <laughs> Uh, I, I'm a consultant. You have to advertise yourself, uh, Edward. I have, Academics I, don't advertise I have that declared that. the year 311 one of the axial points of history. And what happened was this, that for 10 years the Roman government had been attempting to stamp out uh, the already very surging and inescapably successful Christian movement. They were already, by the year 303, building prominent buildings, not till then. The worms were turning. The worms were building palaces for them, not-dung hills. And so the thing was shockingly inescapable that the government could no longer tolerate it. It had to be dealt with drastically. And so a massive empire-wide destruction and suppression of the whole thing was tackled. By 311, it had failed comprehensively you mean the persecution had failed it, it, it had failed to kill off the Christians yeah. um, the, there were of course innumerable martyrdoms uh, which are very well this is the high epoch of of our reverence for the martyrs and and I don't want in any respect to pour any dishonor on the martyrs and what they did they I would never have the nerve to be a martyr, I'm not mocking martyrdom, but martyrdom in fact defied and made pointless the Roman government's program, mm. and it, it, we, we have desperate scenes recorded where a learned bishop, Phileas for example, bishop of Phneus in Egypt, um, a very learned man. <coughs> Uh, also a very rich landowner, and the bishop. So his town or village, village probably, I forget, but it's a town or village, not a major city, is to- virtually totally Christian. And the government recognised that if they're going to break this movement, they have to get the people at the top who really run it, people like <coughs> Phileas just to offer the sacrifice. It was a simple sacrifice that was needed. They didn't have to do anything terrible. They just had to take a pinch of incense and drop it on the flame of the sacrifice. That was all the Roman wanted from them. They wanted simply the most elemental, simple, innocent, trivial acknowledgement of the gods. And the Christians absolutely refused that. Right through, Paul could have said, "Well, it doesn't matter; they're not true gods anyway. Just put the thing on." I think St. Paul would have said that, but that would to say, "Don't quote me on that." I mean, I don't, I do not want to treat the martyrs as foolhardy. Um, but it was the, f- and we know the trial of Phileas, the Roman governor, has clearly been coached. his advisors on how to catch the bishop out and has and remember there are crowds of people watching this this is a public trial as Roman trials always were with with a huge audience largely Christian I imagine and all the governor's trying to do is to persuade the bishop just to do the simple thing and then it will all be over Um, and he knows it's an intellectual matter so he has he has learned the various gambits that will catch a a um, a bishop out, and some of them are, are spot on. Uh, I've published this somewhere, and I don't know whether it's in there or not. But um, I forget them all the details. But look it up sometime. It's very accessible in the Martyr Acts. the The bishop gets rattled, um, and some of the questions he answers wrongly. In other words, the governor has been well briefed on what will bring a bishop down, on, on, on whether, whether Paul did do sacrifice and things like that, and, um, and who Paul was anyway. And so all, all kinds of uh, a, a carefully prepared attempt to maneuver the bishop into accepting that it was a, a simple and elemental thing, that that's all that was required and the bishop simply had, he went to his death. Uh, the governor failed to break his will. The governor's actually botched his... I think both of them were so... The tension must have been enormous and both of them were, were missing their cues, actually, in the argument. It's interesting to see it. But notice, it's in the intellectual arena, in the last resort, that the day has to be settled. Now, I haven't told you why 311 is appointed. In 311... The government was in the hands of Galerius. <coughs> you may never have heard of Galerius. And he's gone down in history as the horriblest man there ever was. I'm redeeming him. Um, he he is so horrible that when he died, the maggots ate him up from the bottom upwards, etc. That they loved to say this thing is it their out of disgust, of course, at the monster who has died. The monster is the ruler of the Roman world, who is mortally ill. (coughs) And, of course, (coughs) infection has not been discovered, and the value of maggots has also not been discovered, so they don't like having maggots crawling out of them. And, above all, the Christians who gloried in this death, because he was their persecutor, you see, Um, (coughs) and Lactantius... A Christian historian has written a book on the deaths of the persecutors, in which Galerius is held up as a monster, getting what was coming to him, or what he did to the Christians, get eaten up by worms. But we have the text of what Galerius said on his deathbed, verbatim. And what it says is this that. he now accepts that something has to be done about the Christians. In other words, he accepts that he has not broken them. He was the man, by the way, who got the thing going in 303. He wasn't in charge then, he was the deputy. By 311, he was in charge and was dying. And he knew it had failed. And he sets out for the first time in his final order before dying... He sets out what had been wrong with the Christians. He lays it out. And it's the only time in 300 years of history that we have an actual statement from the Roman government about what was wrong with them. The reason why we don't have it before is presumably because the Christians took great care not to preserve (coughs) all the things that were wrong with them from the Roman point of view. These things that Galerius tells us in his dying thing, um, will have been said a hundred times for centuries what was wrong with the Christians, but we haven't got it until Galerius. So that's not why he's an axial point, but in terms of historical evidence, he is crucial because he tells us what was wrong before I tell you the axial point. And what was wrong was this. it's red, It's clear in black and white. (coughs) The Christians made up laws for themselves to keep. That is the basic complaint. (coughs) You cannot make your own laws. And he said they do it on deviant principles. That is, the Latin is per de if you're thinking in that, and which in my opinion means on deviant principles. Other people translate it other way. Um, and I've forgotten what else he says, it just slipped my mind. But he, he makes a clear statement that making up laws for yourself was on a false basis They were working outside the framework on which laws normally justify. And above all, it's the, for themselves which is fatal for him. Of course, you can't make up laws for yourselves. Laws are inherited, and laws embed inherited custom, and so on. And he says they're ignoring what their own ancestors had laid down as lawful and right and good and making up these things for themselves on different principles. Nevertheless, and this is his final point, this is what makes him a great man in history. He says, we'll just have to let them do it. (laughs) Nobody had ever, in the whole of history, had ever said that before. And that's one of the key plaques of Western culture now. Pluralism. The alternative society. It is right to live differently. You may choose on your own grounds to be different. We admire this. We may hate the long hair and all that, but the, um, we nevertheless accept 100% the principle of Galerius, And what's it called? Toleration. In the last resort, a civil society must tolerate diversity. That was, that was Galerius's word, peer de diwesa. We must allow diversity. 100%, as of this day, in this culture in Australia, diversity is a key word. It was given to us in 311 by Galerius, who for the first time authorized diversity.
0: So this is very interesting. If I could just reflect. I haven't finished, but
1: reflect. Can I reflect? Uh, Well, I I haven't got to the point yet. But you want to get to your point? No, no, no. no, no. You reflect for a while, and I'll tell you your point in a moment.
0: Okay. Um, what, what, What interests me about this is my lifelong search for a bigger God than just this, you know, only a program for redemption but a a god who's actually influenced the wider wider world and what uh, what we're seeing here at a subtle if we can get our minds around it is that a lot of the treasured institutions or the treasured belief systems of the modern world are a direct result uh, of of what happened with the christians that what you've just said is that they're phenomenal they're, they're intransigence they're well, number one, they were a movement. I'm using that word for the moment. They could, su- they, they were. It's a good word. Yes, and 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 we all love movements today. Everyone has movements built around ideas. What you're saying is that, is that, and these movements might be atheistic movements uh, where people gather around a big idea and a conceptual framework. But but the the beginning of movements, the movement of movements, was Christianity. Was the was the first time in history that this had happened? A group of people. Bound together by a governing idea that was enormously pervasive, which I think is why Newbegin's uh, comment that Christianity is closer to Marxism than Buddhism sort of I found interesting. Yeah, um, and uh, and that the um, so the the, crea- the and and movements rely upon the power of arguments, big ideas that one can persuade. That's what you just said. The word was so important that the and then. Um, and then the, the final part about this socially, uh, this, uh, this innovation, social innovation that Christianity began was due to their refusal, due, due to the fact they were so willing to die, so many of them, over this 10 year period. Mm-hmm. That intransigence forced Galerius, his only, the only, uh, card had left to play was to tolerate them and, th- and right. thus introduce pluralism virtually democracy the right for people to have rights within the state that the state couldn't control and had to add right.
1: it, it is a fundamental moment in history i'm quite certain but the punchline we still await yep. the um, he put a condition on it oh yes it was going to be conditional toleration they could still live differently. they could still write their own laws and so on, so on. but one is one last thing and it requires a little subtlety though um, so the text is crystal clear <clears throat> uh, the word prayer is one of the most ambiguous words in our culture uh, in histo- historically because we use the word prayer for two radically different things um, we speak of the Romans putting their little um, <coughs> incense on their family altar, as Romans did every day, like Hindus do today, I gather. They make a little sacrifice to your family spirits and so on, as well as the gods. And, um, and we call that kind of thing praying. And at the heart of that, the Greek for that, if you're into Greek, is, is you here. Uh, and the verb yuchamai, which we translate prayer and yuchamai, I pray. Uh, but what they're doing is a little ritual. And they're doing it, of course, so that the spirits will be benign towards them. And And at the heart of um, the prayer, of that form of prayer, is the vow. You'll find Paul twice <coughs> refers to the vow, for historical reasons, in acts of Possible apostles but a vow is a bit more than doing it in the domestic um, sanctuary a vow is re- when you make a Solomon pledge to a named God like Christ in the case of Constantine um, that if he gives you the victory, if you're a general you have to do this if you're a general in particular you vow to a suitable God that if he gives you the victory you will in return deliver a magnificent hecatomb sacrifices for him, like a whole horde a of cattle will be slaughtered to in return for the god uh, responding to your vow. And one of the great disgraces would be indeed dangerous things if you made a vow and then failed and got the victory and failed. To give it. That's unthinkable. Now I, I call that kind of prayer, this is my turn, contractual. It's where you bargain in clear-cut, quantitative terms, even with your little sacrifice at home. Uh, everybody is doing it all the time, contracting with the divine world for protection and success and rewarding the divinity with the sacrifice of God's love sacrifices, the Romans thought. So that, that is called prayer. But we would not call that prayer now. Um, it's a pity about the Greek of the New Testament because Paul's, when Paul says praying without intermission and so on, he talks like this, nothing to do with the contractual system. But the verb is almost the same, pros Paul would say. It's just a compound form of the same verb, but it's not the same phenomenon. When Paul is praying constantly, he is not making pledges, vows, sacrifices, or anything. What is he doing? The Latin makes it clear. Um, The Latin for a vow is votum, V-O-T-U-M. And the Latin for a prayer, in the Pauline sense, is oratio, our word oration. And an oratio means the plea of an advocate. An orator, in Latin, is a legal barrister who will appear for you in court and orate the case that will persuade the jury. And the Latin, therefore, in Christian Latin, there is no votum, though some churches, no doubt, managed to get it in um, but everything is pleading my word for this on the, um, on the, the vow is part of contractual prayer the oration the advocacy is part of what I call forensic prayer, meaning you're in an arena in front of God, you're arguing with him, you're trying to persuade him to do things, you're pleading as an orator with the divine. And the psalms is full of this. You can reproach God in your prayers. Where are you? Why can't you do something? I know we've done wrong, etc., etc. The praying in the psalm is utterly, utterly remote from the, the contractual system. It is, it is intercession, if you like. You're pleading for other people, not just for yourself. This is why I love papal funerals. Can I say... I haven't got to the point yet.
0: No, I know, but, but that's
1: we're following you. Can I say why I love papal funerals? Because it is relevant. I can't wait... I don't want the present Pope to die, but, but when Ratzinger dies, I don't want him to die either. I think he's wonderful. But I've seen three papal funerals already on television. And the last one was just overwhelmingly... Uh, magnificent, I thought, because it was all done out in the breezy square of St Peter's. This was for the Polish one. And he was in a simple wooden coffin and on the coffin they placed a a simple large-scale gospel text, uh, a large print, not of the whole Bible, but of the gospel. and. This is imaginative, but I watched it. As the service, a very simple, slow service, takes time, the breeze turned the pages of the gospel on the funeral. You know, they couldn't have designed it. But talk about the Holy Spirit. It was wonderful. And then the um, deacon reads in Latin the scene when Jesus confronted Peter, do you love me, feed my sheep. Do you love me, remember? Three times he said. And the deacon just reads and the cellar, feed my sheep. And that's the gospel reading. And then the invocation comes. The, the invocation is where you all plead or appeal to those close to the throne of the Almighty, namely the saints. You appeal to the saints to receive him, or rather to plead for him uh, at the throne of grace. And the way they do it at a papal funeral takes ever so long time, because there are masses of saints in Rome, all the martyrs of Rome for centuries. the cantor sings their names one by one, or groups of them. Saint so and so, he says, and the choir responds with two words. Aura pro a, o. Pray for him. Saint so and so. Pray for him, says the choir. And it goes on and on and on. This is elemental. Christian belief you see the the public, the choir is pleading not with the almighty direct but pleading through the saints seeking their intercession and the word is aura this is oratory advocacy that is the word that Galerius used in his edict when Galerius said they can do it their own way but pray for me exactly that word he said somebody had told him that is what Christians do they don't sacrifice all of this 300 years of persecution was about sacrifice the Christians refused to sacrifice to the gods which was the ordinary routine of life and of course the Christian bishops in droves for centuries will have been saying, but we do pray. We orate for the emperor and so on. And Galerius got the point at the last. Not only was he a great man, because he dropped the totalitarian doctrine for the first time and said, you can live your way, but pray for me. Isn't that beautiful? That's beautiful. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's why I say this is an axial point in history. Yeah. So,
0: so this concept of, this new concept of prayer, uh, let, can I just confirm that this idea of prayer as a debate with the Almighty versus a ritual transaction contractual system, this, was this also unique to the
1: Jewish Christian tradition? Utterly unique, yes. Utterly. Uh, I mean, indeed, what, this is one of the things that shocked Um, people about the Christians, they talk so much and make so much noise and so on. Because what you should do in a contractual system the holiness of it or the sanctity would be shattered if a, a single word wrong was uttered. And the Romans were as pedantic as I am about accuracy of words. And the right words to say in every circumstance were long predetermined by long custom rituals and written down. Mm-hmm. And they were very elemental and simple words, and you must say them exactly right. Otherwise, the thing is, the contract is void, like a legal document. If there's one word wrong, the thing is wrong. And the Romans, Roman life was seized by this kind of um, paralysis. Really, I mean, there's a famous story well known to Roman history. I've forgotten the details. When a Roman general was um, campaigning in uh, Samnium, south of Rome. This would be the third century B.C. And his critics back at Rome uh, spread the awful... This is a bit like Hillary Clinton's dilemma. you see. His critics back at Rome spread the evil rumour that the validity of his auspices (coughs) was questionable because a wrong word had been said. Now, No general... The general has imperium, which is a kind of dynamistic power to do everything. And it's granted to you by the people. It's a sort of sacrosanctity imperium. And in order validly to use your imperium, the holder of it had to consult the auspices about everything. You not just make contractual vows but also there were professional people who would consult the auspices for you and tell whether the auspices were right or wrong. Anyway, the allegation was brought forward that the guy's auspices had been faulty because somebody had heard it and a, a word was wrong. <coughs> well, the general at once was seized by that This was a crisis. Here he was down in the battlefield. So he handed over the command of the Roman legions to his deputy and... Um, marched back to Rome, several days' journey, in order to do his auspices properly and get them correct. Fix the word. Fix the word. So he was no doubt furious, it was all, probably all put up job, but no way he could defy it. Um, so back he went, got his auspices um, right, and, and he told his deputy on no account uh, was he to um, risk an engagement with the enemy until the auspices were fixed up. The deputy, however, was an opportunist and saw a golden moment and attacked the enemy and won. This was a major crisis. He shouldn't have won because the auspices hadn't been fixed. This can't happen, you see. The general in command was in a state of apoplexy. When the news got back to Rome, he was on his way back to do the engagement with the enemy to heads all over. The deputies won, minus auspices, and vowed to take his life uh, the insubordinate one. When he got down he had troops with him and the deputy had the victorious troops enjoying their hour of victory and, and the, there was virtually a civil war and um, the general was absolutely uh, con- determined that the man should be punished for jeopardising the future of Rome by scoring a victory in the wrong way. And. Um, Anyway, common sense eventually prevailed, and it simmered down and they got over the crisis. But I'm telling you this for a reason. But what was the reason? Explaining
0: how pedantic they were in their contractual uh, system.
1: Uh, and, 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 oh, about, the w- about noise. Noise. The words. And we know from the poets that you can't afford to say a r- wrong word or it invalidates the sanctity of the thing. So any idea of um, a freewheeling debate with God or or protestation or plea of any kind in a forensic manner is so alien to the idea yeah, so, of sanctity.
0: So you began with the idea of constraint and now the picture of the Christians is in their prayer life, in their preaching, they were people for the word, they were noisy people in the sense they developed debate and discussed and argued yeah. in a sense of... Uh, I want to just I want to finish with one question, if I could.
1: Yes, and I haven't given you the answer to why they weren't liked yet.
0: Uh, would you like to do that?
1: Now, well, I think the simple answer is they were not liked because they were not, not entitled to be different. They were not a nation. The Jews were a nation. They can be different. And the Jews were exempted. They, could, they didn't have to do sacrifices in the Roman system because they were Jews
0: and the Romans understood that they knew what a the nation was the Romans understood was.
1: that and uh, they, were, they, had, they had legal exemption in three centuries no one in the churches said why don't we ask for legal exemption and no one on the Roman side thought of offering it to them extraordinarily it seems absurd they, they could have done a bargain at the beginning and said we might as well be Jews anyway why can't we have the exemption but it was beyond their imagination on either side so it took three centuries of terrible conflict really, not continuous, but on and off with terrible things, uh, because they were not foreigners, they were Romans, and they had to do the Roman thing, not something of their own, made up.
0: Um, and do you, uh, so what I wanted to finish with, with was, um, which in a way crystallizes uh, what we've been saying tonight was, Paul and how Paul was regarded as a sophist, not as a rabbi or teacher, um, that his opponents or, or, um, or he was viewed almost as, a, as a, in the philosophical class, not in the
1: religious class, and the rabbinical class. Could you just comment on that in closing? Yes, I wouldn't call it philosophical. He, um, he was critical of philosophers and the philosophers would have been. Uh, absolutely uh, scathing of him. Um, I called him a a sophist, with apologies, because I was looking for a category. By sophists, what ancient historians mean in the second century AD is a travelling orator or lecturer who will visit your city for a fee and and give splendid speeches on the anniversary of the founding of your city for you and this kind of thing. And it was a major cultural phenomenon, a bit like in America today, where a huge amount of orating goes on in the public arena, not over the elections, but just in general. And and people get big fees for giving lectures and people love hearing lectures. It was a bit like that in the second century AD. And these are called sophists, that is, people who are highly educated and have authoritative, interpretative things to say of value to the community. Now, they can be philosophers too, but philosophers are, are a more strict, um, strictly controlled, tight intellectual, theoretical, like modern physicists. It's almost
0: like a, a TV commentator or a journalist or...? Oh
1: yes, it's, it's exactly what the ABC calls writers writers paul and, would have been a writer and a, a writer if a writer says it's okay that lends authority <laughs> and no one can tell you what a writer is or which people count as writers um, but it's this kind of concept exactly and i i used this term of paul and it, it seems stupid and ridiculous um but has been validated as a, as a good suggestion yes. by Bruce Winter and his thesis. He wrote a book called Philo and Paul, Among the Sophists, and successfully demonstrated um, that, in fact, this sort of sophistic phenomenon was functioning a century earlier than we know about it in the extant works. And the evidence is there in the papyri.
0: And and just to conclude, because I this is my piece of ego, I go out on a limb a lot, Edwin. And um, I, I preached on Hebrews some time back, and began in the Acts of the Apostles. Mm. And I made a I, I really interpreted the Acts of the Apostles as a as a great power struggle between the conservatism of Jerusalem and the boundaries of Paul pushing the boundaries and. Um, James and uh, the headquarters seemed to be the forces of conservatism, whereas Paul was... Uh, there was a great tension between them, and uh, you, you said, I was right. I, could you repeat that for everyone so I get a bit of a <laughs>
1: Actually, was dreaming while you were saying it. Just say it again in one sentence. Uh,
0: can you contrast Paul and James in the Acts of the Apostles around, over Acts 15 and... The, the debate between the conservatism of James and well, Paul on the edge.
1: Well, of course, yes, it's, and we know what it's about. Um, to put it in Pauline terms, it's about the conditions on which the grafting in of the Gentiles is to be tolerated. Paul and, and James agreed completely that salvation is with the Jews and the Messiah is the Messiah of Israel. And the faith of Abraham is for all; his seed will be for all the earth. And so, on. there was no disagreement about this. The question was, um, entering into the heritage of Israel by grafting as uh, a, a Gentile uh, requires some recognition. Uh, but what? And the Council of Jerusalem in the middle of the Acts of the Apostles is where this was sorted out. And yes, it. it it is a very crucial matter of course and is I think one of the fundamental things in Acts the other fundamental thing in Acts I think is how to say the gospel when you're speaking beyond people who are conscious of the Israel Israel heritage and where you have to explain in other terms what it is The the book of Acts lays that out
0: yes the communication in non-Jewish terms of That's the gospel right. but what you say is right Thank you. Well, we might uh, finish there, uh, Edwin. Um, thank you very much for your time and your life, and the enormous thought you've put into all of these matters. Um, and God bless you.
1: Yeah. Well, let me just. Uh